on day three of each of the tests throughout the summer. When we've got to day three, didn't quite do that last time in Adelaide, did we? Uh, we've spoken to Jim, celebrating his Golden Jubilee, his 50 years on air with the ABC. We've touched on a few different matters, but uh, I think one of the great delights of uh, being someone that covers sport around the world is when you get to see the eyes, uh, you get to see the world through your work, you get to go on tour, the, the cricketing tours of Jim Maxwell over the years, and not just the people you've met, Jim, and the experiences you've had, but also the, the changes in the way that, of course, there is the formative and number one task of reporting back to Australia with what's happening mm. on, on, with the Australian cricket team on tour. So how many, how many months, years, do you reckon did you've spent away covering the Australian cricket team over the years? Well, that's something I haven't counted, but it's, it's been so enjoyable, I suppose you don't count, um, except when they're one-sided series. But most of the time when Australia's been away, other than a few times perhaps in India when we've been on the wrong end of the argument, uh, it's been very enjoyable because the series have been competitive. And uh, Australia, right through that period, and Steve Ward, Ponting, Michael Clark, now with Cummins, they played some pretty good cricket, whether they're at home or away. So uh, they're a joy to watch. And uh, they, they still are. They're, they're very... A, a, attractive test, test match cricketers and uh, very successful, as the, the record shows. When was the first time you went overseas to cover the Australian cricket team? 1983, uh, which was somewhat controversial at the time. Um, I went to England. Derek White was running ABC Sport then. He'd taken over from Bernie Kerr, who'd been there for a long, long time. And um, I think he had a, a view that perhaps there need to be a, a, a freshening of the commentary because uh, you think back to those days uh, Alan McGilvray was the doyen understandably, he did all, all the cricket, he was employed on that basis and um, he was still employed on that basis when Derek White said, you're going off to the World Cup in England and I thought mm, this could be tricky but there it was and so I was given the opportunity to go and it was a, a wonderful opportunity because when you work with the BBC, you're working with a richly resourced broadcasting organisation. Not that uh, the ABC isn't uh, well endowed, I suppose, but uh, the BBC have a lot more people to do a lot of things and uh, to support and the rest of it. And Peter Baxter was the producer in those days. And I got the chance to work with a, a lot of people and see some amazing cricket, particularly from Zimbabwe. And I was just speaking to the match referee, Andy Pycroft, who comes from Zimbabwe, and he played in that extraordinary game at Trent Bridge where uh, Zimbabwe won yeah, with one of the straight. greatest fielding mm. performances I've ever seen. And he took a catch, as I said to him again when I met, met him in London, I said, you went underground when you took that catch out there in the deep. So, yes, there were, there were lots of interesting people to work alongside, uh, meeting... Uh, well, Trevor Bailey, really, for the, for the first time in, as a commentator and, and getting a nice slice of his uh, schadenfreude in relation to one of our spin bowlers. Well, the world is such a smaller place now because of technology. We can pick up our phone and look at someone on the other side of the world and have a conversation mm. with them. The way that you would report the game back then, I'm wondering what was in your kit bag when it came to getting an interview, even getting contact 
with Australia to tell the story of who's been picked in the team or what's happening. How would you go and speak to uh, the, the, the players? You know, I, I remember starting with an old cassette recorder. These days, yeah, we, yeah. we've got internet. This is no mobile phones, no internet, and it cost an arm and a leg for an international phone call. So yeah. how did you tell the story of those early tours back to Australia? Well, 83 was easy because I was with the BBC and I did have one of those old cassette tape recorders and I recorded interviews and we plug into the system and off it and go. But the next year, I went to the West Indies for the 84 tour. Now, it was a bit more difficult then. So I used to have what they call as a crocodile clips, right? So you'd rip open the phone and you clip these things onto the phone, onto the, the lines in there, the, the wires. The handheld yeah, phone. The old, yeah, yeah. Yes, right. The old hand, well, you didn't have anything else. Um, and uh, particularly in Guyana, you had to book the call and then hope uh, that you'd get through. You could only do it from your end. You couldn't book them to ring you. It didn't work. So uh, in other places, it, it was a bit more advanced, but it was still the same procedure. If I wanted to send an interview, that was the only way I could do it with these crocodile clips and the thing that was stuck into the output of the cassette recorder. And um, that's how it went. I, I think the quality was marginal, but that's what it was. And how would you get contacted for what was required? I mean, media managers, were they even a, a thing then? I mean, team managers, obviously. The, no. The, the relationship between you and the players would have been very different then than what it is now in that regard. Yeah, you walk up to the bar and uh, Rodney Hogg or someone to be there. I said, are you right for an interview or whatever? Normally, you, you went through the, the manager. Uh, of, the, of the team and it was um, Colin Eager on that tour uh, in 1984 and th there wasn't there wasn't much demand or sort of a um, opportunity it, it wasn't seen to be okay they didn't they didn't have for formal press conferences in those days they had a thing at the end of the match in the dressing room you'd drift in there and the boys would take a few notes but there was no formality in the organisation of communication that there is today. It was very informal. And as I say, more often than not, if you wanted specifically to speak to a play, you'd sort of say, is that all right? And you'd go to the manager and say, I'm going to die. Yeah, OK, and no, no problem. So um, that's how it worked. But, um, yes, it was a lot looser. Everything was a lot <laughs> looser. Yeah, there, are, there are certain directions that this chap could take you know, Jim's stories on tour, but we're going to keep pretty much in the V for the time being. I'm just wondering then, so your relationship with the players, how did you handle that as, as someone who was there to cover the game, um, yet at the same time, you know, trying to build rapport uh, and, and very different demands, very, very different environment for what it was for the media in, in cricket? Uh, three decades ago, or even more. Although we weren't very well paid in those days as a ABC sports commentator. Well, that hasn't changed. But we were, <laughs> we, were, we were getting more than the players, probably. Well, that's that a good period. point. Mm. That they were on a, a contract for the tour, and they had a daily allowance. They were given a, a bundle of notes. Um, so you'd normally strike up a party. You'd walk into some spot at the end of the day. You're normally staying in the same hotel. And he'd say, feel like a drink, whatever, and uh, away to go. Uh, and uh, we had 
a lot of fraternization with our own group because uh, that tour at 84 was significant it was the last time that we had newspapers like uh, the the daily mirror and the sun the, the afternoon newspapers and um, so we had quite a few people over there uh, covering the, um, the having the tour covering the tour I and mean, that shrunk over the years of course um, major newspapers aren't going to be forking out a lot of money to send people away when one person can do the job of four people it seems these days uh, which is a, a bit onerous given that they they have to pump out more stuff as it happens than in those days where they did a report say in the West Indies at the end of the day's play and by the time you at home read that we're into the next day's mm. play um, but at least it was on the radio in in, in 84 uh, there wasn't any television coverage of that series other than in the Caribbean in Trinidad and Tobago that was the only place where we had um, TV coverage locally and that would have been outside of the ashes what basically what Australia and India has become Australia and England has always been Australia and England but now we see that because of the growth of India and the growth of the game that has now come alongside the ashes as the biggest series we play but in the in the 80s the all-conquering West Indians that that would have been the equivalent wouldn't of what we see now as the Australia v India battles well we loved the West Indies of course in the 80s they were, they were good for the coffers apart from being out, uh, outstanding at what they did and they were here almost every summer either test cricket or one day cricket um, in that period so they, they were gold for uh, the coffers of, of cricket Australia did you get on much with because you were there so much around the West Indians and we had Carl mm. Hooper here who's not quite of that generation but just after but what about a relationship with the likes of Richards and Lloyd and Holding and Ghana. Yeah, it developed over a period of time because I was there in uh, 84, uh, then in 91, 95, 99 and so on. So, with Viv, the, yeah. There was <laughs> the line in Antigua when Australia in 1990, uh, 1991 actually lost, lost the series, as I recall. But they, they'll be doing all right. Boone and... Um, was Marsh might, opening might have been, Yeah. Get a bit hazy on some of these. Anyway, we were doing well. And I'm standing down near the edge of the ground uh, at the Antigua Recreation Ground, famous for the, the antics of two comedians and uh, Melville and Grevy. And Biv comes uh, swaggering off the field. And I sort of got to know him a bit over a few chocolates along the way. And I, I said, it's good to see that uh, the Aussies are putting putting up a, a bit of competition for it. He said, man, it's about time we've got some competition, you know, the, the way we carry on. Um, and I think that was the last test he played against Australia before he moved on to his retirement. And uh, Terry Alderman, I think, got him out in, in, in both innings of that match. But, yeah, it was always a good rapport. Uh, and uh, in 1984, I did an interview with Clive Lloyd at the end uh, for the ABC Cricket magazine, which Alan McGilvray was the editor of. Uh, and I, I still remember this. It was probably one of the, the kindest, uh, surpri most surprising comments made to me by a, a cricketer from another place. And before we started the interview, he just said, uh, I just want to say, man, you'd be very fair as a commentator. Oh, well, OK. Thank you very much, Clive. That was very kind of him to say. He didn't have to say it. So those little moments stick in the mind.
Um, but as as it moved on through the 90s and to where we are today, the, the opportunity for that sort of connection and rapport um, slipped away because of the demands on the players and also the fact that they were wealthy enough to have their families with them on tour. Mm. That has changed the, the whole matter's operandi. Um, so I enjoyed those earlier days a little bit more. There was, there was a bit more freewheeling going on between yeah. us. So Jim's today reflecting on uh, the great touring that he's done throughout his 50 years broadcasting cricket on the ABC. Now, there are, of course, the, the memorable tours from a cricket perspective. There are the memorable tours from just the places that you've gone to. So can we just tick off which parts of the cricketing world haven't you been to? We know England quite prolifically, the West Indies, uh, India. Uh, Pakistan, you've been to Pakistan? Yeah, I've even been to Zimbabwe. I've been to Bangladesh. Uh, briefly, um, so ever to the I, Emirates? No, I haven't been to that part of the world. Yeah, at all. Okay. Um, but you know, South Africa, uh, fantastic place to visit, d d despite the disparity in the country. The, uh, the opportunities, even now, not equal, despite Mandela being in charge. Uh, there's still a, a vast gap between the haves and the have-nots. And the West Indies basically is a, is a third world country when you look at the various islands and, and what goes on there. So um, they really do need the support of England, India and Australia financially if they're going to continue to prosper. Otherwise, they're going to keep losing players uh, to franchise cricket. And as you brought up South Africa, I think this is the moment where we can look at the big things that happen with stories on tour when you're there with your job. And then there is just personal tragedy and I know there are two things linked in perhaps the most volatile moment of recent Australian test cricket history you were there working for the SABC for Sandpaper Gate oh. so there are moments when you have and you were one of the only uh, Australian broadcast <coughs> media on the ground and then of course there was the tragedy of of losing our beloved colleague Peter mm. Roebuck yeah on a tour bad. earlier on so and, and it I, I wouldn't want to go into that too much because there's too much to say other than and it, was a, it was a tragedy, but it was one that I was um, forewarned of by Peter himself uh, because of third, certain things that had happened in his life. And um, he, he, he said that, you know, um, if things like that happen again, I don't know what I'm going to do. So it was, it was kind of out there. But when it happened, you just thought, you're kidding. It hasn't happened. How could anyone do do that as, as it were how could anyone all of a sudden be in that kind of emotional uh, condition and decide that uh, that was the end of it so that was tough to deal with uh, at the time Yet because we had it had yeah. yeah well that's right we went from Cape Town where we'd lost by a margin after getting out for what was it 47 and it was at the end of that game that this unfortunate incident occurred and then we still had the test match in Johannesburg so there was a, a little bit of regrouping, shall we say. I had Drew, the late Drew Morfitt and Jeff Lawson, or the companions, as well as people like Peter Lawler, who was, who was there as a, the moral support around what, what had happened. And uh, we had to get our heads together and press on and do the test match. And uh, Peter Longman used to run ABC Sport. He came over as a moral support. And I remember speaking uh, to the... Uh, psychologist from Cricket Australia who was back in Melbourne about just how to um, manage my 
myself and my emotions leading into all that. So it was a period of disquiet, um, no doubt about that. The sandpaper thing, I just have to, I, I'll just sum it up by saying the Australians were naive. Uh, they knew that the South Africans were on their case and they didn't take any notice of the warning and uh, they still did something dumb. Um, and remembering, of course, that they weren't uh, punished for ball tampering, but for bringing the game into disrepute by telling Porky Pies at a hastily arranged press conference where Steve Smith wanted to take one for the team. And uh, it was a shambles. And it's not so much the the way that th there's the cricketing reality, but as as an Australian over there, as there weren't too many, and you know how it blew up at home. What's it like when you're away from home and then there is a massive story involving the Australian cricket team, which is mentioned all the way to Parliament. You're over there and your phone's ringing off the hook. You're, you are there. You're that guy mm. among uh, on tour with the privilege of being there and the duty to bring the story back home. And you know that the country is talking about one thing and one thing alone, and that's what's happening with the Australian cricket team abroad. I don't think there's any doubt that the Prime Minister of the day, Malcolm Turnbull, tipped a bit of petrol on the fire. Um, the Cricket Australia responded to that. Uh, James Sutherland was over there and uh, things moved along quite hastily. But as in all these circumstances, when things blow up one way or another, uh, you have to manage it. Uh, I, I think I'm a bit of a pragmatist. I just look at it and say, OK, uh, what's occurring here? Make some analysis of it. Uh, get hold of as many facts as you can related to what's occurred and, and deliver the message because there was plenty of delivery of that, not only to Australia, but the BBC were all over it and um, I happened to be caught up with them too. So, yes, uh, it's, it's become one of the things ar around the game of cricket, whereas when I, I started, I was a sports commentator talking about the sport, right? That's all you talked about, really. You didn't talk about any peripheral stuff as you do um, or you get dragged into it today unless you're um, being warned not to be editorialising about some aspects of uh, these peripheral issues that creep into our lives now. But that's the way it is, isn't it? Um, we, we find ourselves uh, constantly caught up with talking about issues of uh, the player's position on certain... Uh, political or lifestyle issues um, and um, sometimes you just don't want to be dragged too much into it because we live in a, such a social media polarised world every time you open your mouth you're going to be criticised uh, for appearing to be biased or leaning one way uh, where you should be sitting on the fence but uh, most of us don't like sitting on the fence because it hurts. Uh, you broadcast over the telephone from India on numerous yes, that, occasions. Yes, that was superb. That was keeping the broadcast going with Glenn Mitchell um, in 2001 and, and then on the, the next two, 2004, passing the mobile phone around while um, a platoon of technicians were in the box trying to work out a telephone line, ISDN line. I'm not supposed to do accident, accents, I know that. Um, well, you had, but, uh, you had the Ganesha there, didn't you? The, the remover of all obstacles. Well, that came about because of Mr. Subramanian, who was mm. the scorer. And everyone thought on our first tour with Mr. Subramanian as the scorer that he was a fake, that we made him up. You can fake a lot of things on the radio. Uh, but um, we had to take photos and uh, reveal that he really did exist. 
Uh, travelled on the trains and so forth? He travelled on the trains. We travelled on the planes. Yeah. Yes. And that, that was how it worked. So does anything beat Lords for an Ashes test? I mean, you, you think of the wonderful... Oh, the Oval's pretty good. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that's normally where the climax of the series is. I, I, and Edgebaston's uh, 2005 and 2023. Wow. Uh, there's a bit of drama there. There's more engagement uh, with the players from the crowd in England than there is here, I think. We're, we sit back and enjoy and we make our own entertainment with a beach ball or whatever. But the English crowds get more into it, as Mitchell Johnson would testify. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I think, wrapping up the, the experiences on tour, there's a, there's a work responsibility, but then there's the life experience of... And then there's the, the cricket-loving part of it. You put all those three together. If if there was if there was one one choice of, of where to go to to cover the Australian cricket team, where would you want to go? Now England, and still, what about the young man going to the West Indies and the Caribbean? West, the West Indies have, have have lost it, unfortunately. So, mm. uh, and we ABC, India. I mean, ABC. it looks amazing there. Yeah, well, no, India also is very attractive, but I'm sort of past that. I've done that. Um, it, it tends to be a bit in your face, but um, it's, it's a life experience to, to learn how to manage uh, the distractions and the technical problems which don't, uh, don't exist today as they did uh, 10 years ago, um, 15 years ago. So, I mean, it's a lot easier for broadcasters as it is, I think, for, for players. They're more comfortable in the environment. Man, they actually have broadcast boxes now in India. Some of the ones they had were shockers. Mm. Uh, but um, ev everything's so much easier in that sense. Uh, and perhaps that's removed a bit of the flavour of what we had uh, going back to, well, Sri Lanka, India um, and Pakistan. Yes. Things could, things could go wrong. And uh, it was normally the problem with the line. So the mobile phone saved us, even though there were those that said the quality of the, uh, the service on the mobile phone isn't good enough. But I said, it's authentic. It gets people saying, we are on the other side of the world when they hear you talk to the police commissioner during the ball-by-ball -ball commentary, mm. that kind of stuff. It brings a certain flavour to it. And an element of surprise. You always need a bit of an element of surprise. That's why we should smash that window in front of us and, <laughs> and get, get some... You've, you've been around the feel. world, Jim, but you cannot get an open window at the Gabba. Uh, this is a segment that could, like most of your segments during the series, expand, but time is against us. Thanks for sharing some moments on tour. And let's no hope there's more to come, Jim. Uh, what a pleasure it's been to work with you and to listen to you from all parts of the world during different eras, from cassettes to TikTok. You've, you've covered all parts of it over your established career.